Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm so close, I could take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. I'm Patrick Weatherby, host of Vitamin. Today I want to share with you an exclusive interview I did with Robert Kennedy Jr. talking about Big Pharma, Fauci, and pro-vaccine movement. Robert, thank you for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you for having me, David. So, so Robert, just out of curiosity, why, uh, why did you want to do a long-form interview and kind of share some of your thoughts and views with the current times, with, uh, with what's taking place with coronavirus, with Fauci with vaccines, with all these things being done. Why, why, why'd you agree to doing a long-form interview? Uh, well, I'd love to talk to your audience. And, you know, any opportunity, listen, Patrick, I, um, I've been working on this issue for 15 years. The, the problem with this issue is that if most people understood it, if most people heard me talk about it or heard me debate about it, I think most people would agree with my positions, which are common sense provisions. Vaccine should be tested like every other drug. Um, the problem is we don't get to convey those thoughts to anybody because of the censorship. I haven't been allowed to publish an editorial since 2008. Uh, newspapers won't, will attack me and then will not allow me to rebut in any way. I can't even write letters to the editor. I cannot appear on television, uh, social media, Facebook, Google, Instagram, all censor what we're saying. Oh, I can, I have an Instagram account. I have, you know, a lot of followers on Instagram and that's where I mainly communicate. Uh, they are severely restricted in being, being able to share the Insta my Instagrams with other people. That's constricted, and I'm not allowed to boost it. So my um, my growth is much slower than it would have been if I was actually allowed to boost. We can't do that on any of the social media sites. Social media sites like Google are intertwined and entangled financially with the pharmaceutical industry. Google has a $750 million deal with Glaxo. It's working with all the pharmaceutical companies to harvest data, to, um, to get people's medical data through Alexis, through Siri, um, through your cell phones when they're left on and the, the microphone is still working and through your buying habits and monitoring those things. So they're, they are in a partnership. Google actually is part of a larger company called Alphabet. And there are other subsidiaries of that company that actually manufacture vaccines. So Google actively censors it when you do um, when you do a Google search, it edits those search to make sure that you do not find the things that are the most common search um, subjects. It will direct you towards things. It will direct you away from anything that harms the pharmaceutical industry. It will direct you away from vitamins. It will direct you away from chiropractors. It will direct you away from functional health or integrative medicine or any kind of alternative to the allopathic, you know, um, pharmaceutical paradigm. What are you saying that's so uh, offensive where many of these social media platforms or even mainstream media wants to censor you from? I, what I you know, look, here's the, here's the story, Patrick. 
Yeah, I got dragged into the vaccine issue, really kicking and screaming very reluctantly. I'm an environmental lawyer. I ran the biggest water, and still do, the biggest water protection group in the world, Waterkeeper Alliance. And I'll tell you how I got into this. In the early 2000s, we have, I, we have 350 waterkeepers in 46 countries around the world. Each one has a patrol boat. They patrol their local river and they sue polluters who are degrading it or contaminating it. In around 2002 to 2005, I was actively litigating about against about 40 coal-burning power plants and cement kilns for discharging mercury. The mercury was coming out of their smokestacks, landing on the landscapes, it was contaminating fish. And at that time, FDA did a study in 2003 has said that every freshwater fish in America now had dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh. So we were specifically, a lot of people were suing coal burning power plants. We were specifically suing them on mercury. And I was going around the country pushing legislation, talking about my lawsuits, raising money. At almost every public appearance that I made, there would be groups of women who would show up. And they would come up to me afterward. And it turns out that all of those women were, were women who had children with intellectual disabilities. And they believed that their children had been harmed by the vaccines. And specifically from the mercury that was then in you know, many of the vaccines, still is in some of them today. And they would say to me, if you're in kind of a mildly scolding but respectful way, if you're genuinely interested in mercury contamination to children, you need to look at the vaccines. It's not something that I wanted to do. I was very content doing, you know, protecting rivers. I, I had been raised in the spear tip of the movement for rights for people with intellectual disabilities. I, I worked in Camp Shriver from when I was a little kid as a counselor, as a hugger. It later became Special Olympics the year my father was killed in 1968. We turned that into Special Olympics. Um, and my family, I worked for hundreds of hours when I was in high school at Wasaic Home for the Retarded because it was a central preoccupation of my family, children particularly with intellectual disabilities. It's not, I had a lot of exposure to it, but it's not where I wanted to spend my life, a lot of empathy. I really was committed to spending my life trying to clean up rivers and clean energy and those issues. One of these women came to my home in the summer of 2004 with a big pile of, uh, of scientific studies, about 18 inches thick, and she put it on my front porch. She was a psychologist from Minnesota named Sarah Bridges. She had a child who had gotten autism from vaccines had actually gotten a $20 million award from the vaccine court, which recognized that his autism had come from the vaccines. She brought that, she didn't want it to happen to any other kids. She brought me this big pile of scientific studies and she said, I'm not leaving here until you read this. Now, I'm very accustomed to reading science. I've brought over 500 successful lawsuits in my career Almost all of them involve some kind of scientific controversy. So I actually started, I, I'm not going to say I read all the studies cover to cover, but I read the abstracts for all of them, which is the summary at the beginning of the study. And before I was six inches into that pile, 
I was already dumbstruck by the huge delta between what the actual published peer-reviewed science was saying and what the public health regulators were telling the public and doctors and everybody else about the safety of vaccines. And I realized that there was a real problem and that these vaccines, vaccines in our country, unlike other medicines, are never safety tested. People find that astonishing. The reason for that is an artifact of CDC's legacy as the public health service. That was the predecessor organization agency to CDC. The public health service was a quasi-military agency, which is why people at CDC still have military ranks, like Surgeon General, etc. And the vaccine program was initially launched as a national security defense against a biological attack on our country. So the regulators and the Pentagon wanted to make sure that if the Russians attacked us with anthrax or some other biological agent, they could quickly fabricate and deploy a vaccine to 200 million people without regulatory impediments. And so they said, if we call it a medicine, we're going to have to safety test it. And that usually takes two to five years. Let's call it something else. We'll call it a biologic. And then we will exempt biologics from having to do safety testing. So um, the industry, the four companies that make all 72 vaccines that are currently mandated for our children, I've got another gift that, that has contributed to the lack of safety assessments and lack of safety concerns with vaccines. And that is in 1986, there was a vaccine. I got three vaccines when I was a kid. But by 86, there was about 11 of them. And one of them was called the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, or the DTP vaccine. And it was killing lots and lots of children. And it was causing brain damage in a tremendous number of children. And the industry was getting sued. Oh, Wyeth, which is now called Pfizer, went to Congress and said, we are getting out of the vaccine industry because we'll, we're paying $20 in damages for every $1 we make from this vaccine. And you cannot make a vaccine safely. You, you cannot, it is impossible to make a vaccine that's completely safe. You are gonna injure a certain amount of people and the injuries are gonna be grievous enough that nobody will ever make on, on any money on vaccines because they're gonna have to pay more in injuries and we can't make them better. And we're gonna get out of the industry altogether and stop making vaccines unless you give us complete blanket immunity from liability. So Congress, was a Democratic Congress, Republican President Reagan, all of them taking lots of money from these pharmaceutical companies, the number one contributor, passed a law in 1986 called the Vaccine Act, or FICA, which gave blanket immunity. So no matter how grievous your injury or your child's injury, no matter how toxic the ingredient, no matter how sloppy the line protocols, no matter how negligent that company, you cannot sue them or redress. So there's no discovery, there's no depositions, there's no medical malpractice, there's no class actions, zero consequence if they kill you or if they injure you from life. And the vaccine companies in the, or the pharmaceutical companies 
took a look then at the landscape and they said, holy cow, now we have a product that there is no liability. And for every medical product, the biggest cost is paying liability at the back end. So they said, now, you know, that's scrubbed. We don't have to worry about that. Number two, we don't have to safety test them. So there's no reason, there's, there's no, that's a huge cost also for every other medication that they're now avoided. Third, there's no marketing cost and zero advertising cost because the government is going to mandate this product to 78 million people. So there's no market forces to tell, or legal forces to tell us to make this vaccine safe. And there's no reason to make it safe because nobody can sue you. Nobody can do discovery. There's no consequence of giving you a really dangerous vaccine. Oh, there was a goal. And by the way, without, with all those costs waived and mandatory um, consumption of that product, it's a gold mine. Oh, there was, if you can get a vaccine on the CDC schedule, it's worth a billion dollars a year typically to your company. So there was a gold rush and all of these companies rushed on CDC and captured the agency and got them to mandate all these vaccines. And we went from the three vaccines that I had when I was a kid to um, 72 doses of vaccines that my, that, you know, my children's generation is getting. And what happened? And that began, that process began in 1989. And if you look at what happened in 89, we suddenly had an epidemic of chronic disease. So um, the allergic disease, peanut allergies, suddenly became epidemic. Peanut allergies in my generation or in, my, in, in the generation in 1986 were about one in 1,200. Today, it's one in 12 kids. The um, asthma exploded, another allergic disease, anaphylaxis, eczema, which I never heard of when I was a kid, now is everywhere, it's ubiquitous. We know that all those injuries are caused by vaccines. Those are the allergic illnesses, the neurodevelopmental disorders, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, tics, narcolepsy, um, language delay, SIDS, um, and ASD and autism suddenly exploded. Autism rates went from one in 10,000 my, in my generation to one in every 34 kids today, one in every 22 boys. This is a crisis. It's much worse than the coronavirus crisis. One in 22 boys debilitated for life, will never write poetry, never vote. Never, half of them will never use a toilet. None of them, half of them will never utter a word. They'll never go on a date. They'll never play tax, pay tax. They'll never serve in the army. It's one in every 22 boys. This is a huge, huge crisis that dwarfs coronavirus. And, no, and the CDC, if there are 700 measles cases in this country, they will put 1,200 forensic pathologists and virologists in moon suits, and they'll go out and turn over every rock and find out where that came from, what is causing it. And if you ask CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control, their job is to tell us where these diseases are coming from, Where's the peanut allergies coming from? I don't know. 
where's the autism coming from? Where's the ADD? Where are all these autoimmune diseases? Why are we exploding with juvenile diabetes, with rheumatoid arthritis, with fibromyalgia? The reason is because they know where it's coming from. It's coming from the vaccines. And it's not me saying this. If you look, all of, there's 420 diseases that are now epidemic since 1989. And by the way, Congress told EPA, tell us what year the autism epidemic began. And the EPA scientists came back and said, we can draw a red line. It happened in 89. That's when everything changed. Well, that's the year the vaccine schedule changed. But those diseases that are now epidemic, those 420 diseases, they appear on two lists. One is a list of diseases that have become epidemic since 1989. And two, they are on the manufacturer's inserts listed as side effects from vaccination. And the reason for that, Patrick, is because if the one way that you can sue a vaccine company under VICA is if they know of an injury that's caused by vaccines, a side effect, and they fail to list it on their manufacturer's inserts. So that's the one place they're on it. And if you look at the, D, at the DTaP vaccine, autism is listed as an insert on their insert. So they'll deny it everywhere else. They admit it on their inserts. And that's where you can go to get the truth. Let me say one other thing. You know, that. My party, the Democratic Party, is the worst on this issue. And it's very odd to me that they're mandating these vaccines that are untested. How can you mandate any medication for a human being? How can you tell somebody, we are going to force you to take a medication that you don't want to take? And, you know, we signed a treaty, the Nuremberg Charter, after World War II, because the Nazis were doing that. They were testing vaccines on people and all these other medical treatments. And we said, that is a war crime. We don't do that to people. And we signed the Syracuse, you know, the Syracuse Protocols, uh, the UN Charter of Human Rights, Alinsky Accords, the Nuremberg Charter, all of those saying them, you cannot give a medication to somebody against their will, even if the life of the nation is at stake. That's a quote. And yet, we're mandating these drugs and not only are we forcing people to take them when we know they cause injury in the vaccine court has paid out $4 billion and they, and they, they're severely limited those judgments. And even HHS admits at the vaccine court that fewer than 1% of, of injuries ever gets reported or awarded. So, you know, make that 400 billion. We know they cause a lot of injuries. Even if they cause one injury, how can you force a human being to take it against their will? It makes no sense. Oh, but the other thing is these, the, the Democrats will say, if you ask them, who, what is the most corrupt industry that's corrupted our political system? They'll all say the same thing. They, you know, the oil industry is huge and pesticide injury, but they'll say nobody has the influence that the pharmaceutical industry has. There are more pharmaceutical lobbyists on Capitol Hill than there are congressmen, senators, and Supreme Court justices combined. And they put twice the money of the next biggest lobbyist, which is oil and gas. They're notoriously corrupt. The four companies that make all 
72 of the vaccines that are now mandated for our children, every one of them is a convicted felon. In the last 10 years, those four companies, Sanofi, Merck, Pfizer, and Glaxo, have paid $35 billion in penalties and damages and, and you know, civil penalties for falsifying science, for defrauding regulators, for lying to doctors and manipulating and bribing and blackmailing, et cetera, and for killing hundreds of thousands of people. Vioxx alone, which is Merck's product, Merck is the biggest vaccine maker in our country. It had another flagship product. Now it's the Gardasil vaccine, but back then it was Vioxx. Vioxx killed between 120,000 and 500,000 Americans in, in between 2002 and 2007, 2006. And it was a, it was a pill that Merck marketed it as a headache pill that Merck knew caused heart attacks. How did it know it? It knew it from its clinical data because it killed a lot of people during the clinical trials. And Merck's, when we sued Merck, there, we got documents that were these flow charts from their, um, from their bean counters that said, we are going to kill a certain amount number of people, but we will still make more money, even if we have to pay damages to all the people we kill. So we should go ahead and do this. So, you know, which is, is justifiably more, more morally justifiable. If you tell the people, when you take this pill for your headache, your arthritis, it may kill you, then you're okay, because you warned him. But Merck didn't warn him. It hid that fact. And most of the people who die, probably, if they knew this could have killed them from a heart attack, they probably would have taken an aspirin. But Merck didn't give them that choice. It lied to them. How are we, doesn't it require a kind of cognitive dissonance to believe that the company that would kill half a million people to make a buck on Vioxx suddenly has found Jesus when it comes to vaccines, which by the way, is the only place they can never get caught. Because in all of those other drugs that they got caught for, the way they got caught was that private attorneys, plaintiff's attorneys representing injured clients sued the company Merck or Sanofi or Wyeth, whatever, Pfizer or whatever, and in the course of discovery came across documents that showed criminal behavior. They took those documents, they brought them down to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they said to the U.S. Attorney, you need to prosecute these, this company for criminal acts. That's how they got busted. Well, that will never happen with vaccines, because there are no lawsuits. There is no liability. They can do anything they want to you. And there are no consequences. And by the way, it's not only that there are no consequences, there are good consequences for them from injuring you. Because this explosion in chronic disease epidemics has made those companies the richest companies in the world. Oh. The, the same companies that are selling you that measles drug are now selling, and the, and the hepatitis B and the DTaP and the hip vaccines, and that vaccine is giving you seizures or epilepsy or autism or food allergies or asthma. That same company is now selling your child who is sick for life, the albuterol inhalers, 
the COVID inhalers, the, um, the Adderall, the Ritalin, the Concerta, um, the, uh, the anti-seizure medication, the diabetes drugs, the rheumatoid arthritis drugs. These companies are making $50 billion a year selling vaccines, mandatory vaccines. And then they're making $500 billion a year selling the treatments for the chronic diseases that are being caused by those vaccines. So there is not only no incentive for them to make it safe, there's actually an incentive for them to make those vaccines as dangerous as possible. They have monopoly control. There's no competition. Everybody's told, you take this Merck's hepatitis B shot. You take Merck's MMR. There is no other MMR to take. Let, let me ask you this. You said your party, just for full disclosure, you're still a Democrat. You haven't left the party. No, I'm still a Democrat, but I'm really angry about this. Why uh, the, the one party that has this wrong is the Democratic Party? Well, I, I'm not going to say blame it completely on the Democrats because, in fact, the parties have gone back and forth on this issue. And when they, we had the, you know, Reagan signed the law into effect. Uh, and I'm not blaming Reagan, you know, because I think Reagan was probably trying to do something good and the Democrats who voted for it all believe that this law would somehow um, make it easier for people to recover um, injuries from injuries quickly and that they would keep people, you know, from getting sick. They didn't know what I know today about vaccines. So, um, but when we had the Supreme Court case, which, you know, extended the liability, complete blanket immunity for all product defect claims to these companies. It was the Republicans on the Supreme Court that voted to do that. And it was the, the Democrats, you know, particularly Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who wrote these, you know, infuriated dissents saying this is, you are unleashing the devil here. And that's exactly what happened. And then um, what, what's happened in, on Capitol Hill and in Congress, the Republicans are as bad as the Democrats. Everybody's scared of this issue. On the state legislatures, the Republicans have been fantastic. And they are the ones that have stopped the pharmaceutical companies. But once they get up into the higher office where pharma has more control, you know, we can't get hearings from them. We can't get anything out of either party. The reason why I ask this is the following reason. So for me, uh, in my family, I'm married, I have three kids. I was in the military. So you know, when you're in the military, take a bunch of shots. I took 11 shots when I joined the army and they said, you're government property. Something may happen, but we're testing. I have offices nationwide and I talk to a lot of my executives and a lot of them are from California and California, they're not comfortable about vaccines. So they'll say, I'm anti-vaccine, I'm pro-vaccine, but there's a lot of people that are, that are in the middle. And, and the people I'd want to focus on is the folks that are willing to be uh, uh, um, educated to consider different positions. I'm speaking to my wife and my wife last night, we stayed up last night late watching all these different documentaries, these articles. And, you know, once you get into this conversation of anti-vaccine or pro-vaccine, there's a lot you can read. There's an, enough content to go through. And she says, well, babe, this is starting to make sense. And that's starting to make sense. And what about this? And it kept going and going. You know, to those who are in the middle, when you talk about Democrats, and I said, you know, why are Democrats not again? I think a lot of people do have an issue with Big Pharma. This is some stats that I pulled up. Is uh, uh, Big Pharma that's uh, advertised $6 billion of TV last year. 
when it comes down to lobbying, you were given a data, their number one, number one was Big Pharma by a mile at 280 million. Uh, insurance was uh, second, then electronic manufacturing, then business associations, then oil and gas, then electronic, then real estate. And then I went a little bit deeper. I said, let me see what's happening with cost. And you see that uh, based on a study done by uh, an independent research group funded by the four health insurance companies, four health insurance companies, type one diabetes spent on average $5,700 per person on insulin in 2016 versus 2841 and 2012. That's nearly a 100% growth in only four years. And 3,400 drugs boosted their pricing for the first six months of 2019, 17% increase in the number of drug hikes from a year earlier. And the average price hike is 10.5%. That's five times inflation. So when I watch debates, you don't see the left and the right being too off when it comes down to a big farm abusing them. So who is holding them accountable to be able to constantly bully? Well, you, know, I, you point out, the first thing you said is really kind of the root of the problem, which is in, I think it was 1996, FDA adopted a new rule. It was illegal in this country for pharmaceutical companies to advertise drugs direct to consumer, in other words, to advertise on TV. And, um, and then FDA changed that rule. So there's only two countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise on TV, and New Zealand is one, and we're the others, and we have, the, as a result of that, we have the highest drug prices, and we, we have the most drugs. I think nine out of every 10 dollars in the world spent on pharmaceutical drugs is spent in this country. So we're, you know, we, it, it's not a good thing for public health. And by the way, the third leading cause of death in this country is pharmaceutical drugs. So they're not making us healthier. We have the most aggressive uh, vaccine schedule in the world in this country, and we have the worst health in our children and adults. Oh, um, we have the worst infant mortality. We have, if you look at any of the metrics, the U.S., I think, is 72 in infant mortality in the world. We're around Syria and Costa Rica. Oh, and when I was a kid, we were number one on all of those. We were, we, we were the best, we were the healthiest people in the world, the best healthcare system. Today, we get, you know, we're paying the most money for the worst outcomes. And a lot of that is because pharmaceutical ad advertisements, not, a, not only have, do they advertise on TV, but they control content. Oh, you know, um, Anderson Cooper is sponsored by Pfizer. Uh, Aaron Burnett is sponsored by Pfizer. Um, the NBC Nightly News is sponsored by Merck. And um, Roger Ailes told me, I, you know, Roger Ailes, who I, who I knew very well, I just, and, and it was the founder of Fox News. I didn't agree with him politically, but we were friends. We spent a couple of months together in a tent. I was 18 years old in Africa. And I, I had this, you know, re good relationship with him. Um, and he understood the issue of vaccine injury. From he had a personal experience with vaccine injury, uh, where a, a kid who was close to him was injured, and so he knew it was true. And we, I had made, a, I helped make a film, a documentary about it, um, a couple of years before he died, when he was still at the height of his powers. And I asked him, you know, can I come on? Not, I didn't want to play it on Fox, but I wanted to come on Fox and talk about it. He said, I can't let you do that. He said, in fact, if any of my hosts 
allowed you on their show, I'd have to fire them. And if I didn't, I would get a call from Rupert within 10 minutes. Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox, also owns one of the biggest vaccine companies in the world and has been one of the big promoters of it. But, he, but what Roger told me then, he said, he said it during non-election years, um, during certain parts of the year, 70% of our advertising revenue for evening news shows is coming from pharma. And, um, and he said, typically there's about 22 ads on an evening news and 17 of those are pharmaceutical ads. And that's why you see this, these aggressive promotions of vaccines all the time. You're, you're constantly t being told it's flu season, get your vaccine, because they're selling the products, not just during the advertising section of the show, but they're selling the products during the entire show. And get your measles, and then, you know, this inflating, the, the terror of flu, the terror of measles, the terror of, you know, coronavirus, which are constant themes, which bring them in viewers, but also sell, you know, medical products, which is what their advertisers are trying to sell. And those companies, you know, the CNN and, and those other companies have been utterly compromised. They're not asking the questions of government officials that they need to be asking. And they're giving, you know, they're bowing down and genuflecting to Anthony Fauci, who has a very well-documented and very checkered history of uh, telling the truth, of not telling the truth, of being, of abusing his power, and of, you know, resulting and, and of doing really sinister things like hiding the leukemia virus that is known to be in three of our large vaccines that we know causes cancer. And he's hidden that from the American people. He, he, he fired the, the number one scientist at NIH when her studies showed that those vaccines were contaminated. Um, and he, he also, he was, Judy Mikovits, who worked for the agency, was on the team that identified the HIV vaccine, or HIV virus, and connected it to AIDS. And he kept that secret for six months that he could get one of his cronies to make the publication, but that resulted in many, many people getting AIDS because the test was delayed by six months. And those things are, um, you know, are really black spots on Tony Fauci's record. And to turn our entire nation over to Tony Fauci with this unquestioned reverence and the constant, you know, genuflecting to him, I think is something that um, is not healthy for our country. And it's really kind of sickening to see, to watch the news division. These people are supposed to be reporters doing the exact same thing that they did during the Iraq war, which is that, you know, what reporters are not supposed to take the word of government officials. My father told me when I was a kid, people in power lie. The job of a reporter is constant skepticism, constant scrutiny, and to ask the difficult questions, and that simply is not happening. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I have the article right here where you said uh, uh, Robert uh, F. Kennedy Jr. warns Anthony Fauci is a fraud and has poisoned an entire generation of Americans. This was just 10 days ago, April 20th. So let's just say you were a reporter. Say Robert F. Kennedy Jr., instead of wanting to go into environment, environmental law, you have a conversation and you decide, you know, I think I want to go be a reporter. If you're a reporter today, if you're a reporter today, and you're interviewing Dr. Anthony Fauci, what questions would you be asking? I would be saying, I mean, number one, 
why um, are we skipping animal studies with these vaccines? We know the history of the coronavirus vaccine. Coronavirus vaccines in the past have shown themselves to be very, very dangerous vaccines, very volatile vaccines. And I'll explain to you why that's so. In 2002, um, beginning in 2002, there were three SARS epidemics. And these are, SARS is a coronavirus. And what the first of those was a natural occurring coronavirus that jumped from bats in China to human beings. The second two were lab-created coronavirus coronaviruses that escaped from the lab and caused these epidemics. And that's non-controversial, and everybody you know, agrees with that. But there was deep concern about the transmissibility and the virulence of coronavirus and its capacity to jump from animals to human beings. So all of the major nations, Western nations in China got together in the between 2006 and 2012 to create coronavirus vaccines. They created about 30 vaccines and they chose the four most promising ones. This was a consortium of the best scientists, virologists, and immunologists in the world. They gave those four vaccines to ferrets. And ferrets are the closest analogy when it comes to upper respiratory infections to human beings. They're heavily utilized to study coronavirus. Ferrets had a, an excellent immune response to the vaccines, meaning they developed antibodies. And that's the metric that FDA uses when it licenses a vaccine. It just looks and says, is it producing antibody? Vaccines are never tested in the field, Patrick. Nobody ever gives uh, 5,000 people a vaccine and 5,000 people no vaccine and then sends them out and sees what happens. That, that's not how they get licensed. They get licensed by showing that they can produce antibodies. And the presumption is that that antibody will defend you against future attacks by, by that virus. And so they, 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 the ferrets developed a really good antibody response, and they thought they had four winners here. But then something really frightening happened. When those ferrets were exposed to the wild virus, they had, had developed horrible inflammation throughout all the organs on their bodies and they died particularly in their lungs and they died and then those scientists remembered that the same thing had happened when they had tried an rsv vaccine in the 1960s on children and rsv was very similar to coronavirus upper respiratory infection and they had given it to about they, they skipped animal studies they gave it to 35 kids and it was excellent immune, provoked excellent immune response. But then when those kids were exposed to the wild virus, they began horribly sick and two of them died and they immediately discontinued that study. And it was a scandal. Everybody remembered it. And they were, in 2012, they were testing all of these vaccines. They said to themselves on ferrets, they said, this is what happened to those children. We tried it out and they developed antibody response, but then they had what we call paradoxical immune enhancement. That when they were exposed to the real virus, instead of, instead of protecting against it, it actually enhanced it and it made it much more deadly. And then they connected it in 2014 to the dengue vaccine, which was one of Tony Fauci's vaccines. 
which had a lot of those same red flags during the clinical trials, but they gave it to the Filipinos anyway. The Philippines gave it to hundreds of thousands of kids. The kids were great, great immune response, and then when they were exposed to the wild virus, they died, 600 of them died. And the Philippine government today is prosecuting criminally, They're putting people in jail for that, because they knew it. They knew something bad was gonna happen from the clinical trials. And so the, this is something that is a unique peculiarity of coronavirus. And it's puzzling that Tony Fauci on his own vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, which he, you know, his, his agency owns 50% of that vaccine. And they went right to human testing without testing on animals. And that just seems almost criminally irresponsible. And he's allowing the same thing. Oh, I would ask him, knowing that history, and by the way, it's not just me saying this. All the people who have criticized me for my stance on vaccines for many years, the leaders like uh, Peter Hotez and Paul Offit and Ian Lipkin are all saying the same thing that I'm saying to you right now. You have to be really, really careful with the coronavirus vaccine. Reason is that vaccines develop um, an a, a, a immune response, but they, they develop different kinds. There are two different kinds of antibodies, and this is what they found out from this process. There's neutralizing antibodies, which you want the, your body to produce, and that guards you against the disease. And those are good antibodies. But they also produce a specific species of antibodies called um, binding antibodies, and those are the ones that provoke that enhanced immune response once you're exposed to the vaccine. And you have to figure out, you know, which one of those you're actually producing. And it's unclear that that, you know, that you, the way you do that is by testing on animals. And they're not doing that in this case. The other thing that they're not doing is they're not using placebo testing, which means nobody will ever know what the risk profile is for those products. If you don't test against placebo, you're, you don't know whether the people who became ill in that cohort that received the vaccine became ill because of the vaccine or it's just coincidental. There's no way to know. And so they don't even record it. And it, 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 um, it immediately creates opportunities for bias, for corruption, and for cheating if you do not use placebo. And that's why the World Health Organization, CDC, FDA, NIH, everybody says, if you don't use placebo, it's not science, it's marketing. And that's what they're doing. They're doing all of these tests without using placebo. I would say to Anthony Fauci, why aren't you using a placebo group? Are you scared about what is going to be shown about safety if you actually use a true placebo group? It's completely irresponsible. Yeah, uh, when you look at the data and the media shows approval rating of Fauci against Trump, and they constantly showed that, that America Trump's Fauci, uh, trusts Fauci more than uh, Trump right now. Behind closed doors, what is the motivation of uh, Fauci? You know, you, you have a, a lot of folks who are watching saying this man seems like a reasonable guy. Uh, Fauci, I, I, Fauci has a bias towards vaccines, and he owns the vaccine. So he has the patents. He literally owns vaccine patents. Is it purely profit? Motivation is purely profit? Well, no, I, I think it's power. And I think the same is true of the case. Both of them actually stand to make huge amounts of money. You know, 
potentially billions and billions of dollars. And I don't believe, you know, it's very hard to look into another man's brain, and I try not to do that. But I, just looking at them, I really believe that their motivation is more about power. And there is no more powerful position than being a health official, because you can literally dictate. I mean, at this point, Tony Fauci has powers that no American president has ever had. He's, you know, telling people in California, you can't go to the beach. You can't go in the ocean. You can't go shop. Your kids can't go to school. You have to stay in your house. You, you're going to, you know, the, two days ago, they were giving $1,000 tickets to people who were swimming in the ocean and surfing. No president's ever had that kind of power before. But today, Fauci, who is very, very close, that partners with Gates, are telling America, and they're, what they're saying, if you listen carefully, what they're saying is, you all are, are going to stay in the house until we have a vaccine. It's not going to be safe to come out. And that is a tremendous power to tell people they have to wait and do that until you get the vaccine. Now, you know what? I think there is a struggle about, between two different ways to handle this quarantine. And nobody, everybody's saying, listen to the scientists. But there's a flaw there which is the scientists can tell you, maybe can model, they can model how many people are going to die from coronavirus using different scenarios. You know, um, if, if we all go back to work tomorrow, here's how many people die. If we all stay locked up for six months, here's how many people. And they can do that probably pretty well. Well, people are saying, listen to the scientists, but there's something that is not being modeled here which is something that those scientists have no expertise on, which how many people are being killed by the quarantine. There's really good data that is solid from, you know, dozens and dozens of studies that show that, number one, isolation kills lots of people. It kills people through depression. It kills people through mistakes. It kills people from not getting, you know, routine medical care. It, it kills people in a lot of different ways, but also it um, unemployment kills people. So there's a really good 1982 book that's considered authoritative. And that book did all of the modeling on, you know, on historical unemployment rates. And this was a long time ago. So our population has you know, almost doubled since then. Um, but what they, that book found is that for every point in unemployment, if there's 37,000 people die, about 9,000 people die from heart attacks, uh, 900 people die from suicides, all these different reasons that they die. And then 3,000, 3,300 3, people go to prison every one point, and an extra 4,000 people end up in mental institutions. Oh, we're looking at unemployment rates from this quarantine that are going to exceed 35%. In other words, the increase has gone from 3.5% and it will go to 35%. You multiply 37,000 by 30 and you're looking at over a million people, about 1.1 million people who could die from the quarantine just from that metric. And then there's a lot of other metrics. For example, what do we, you know, we are hurting the, uh, we're disrupting the food, the supply chains for foods and medicines. 
So people are not going to get their medicines. People are not going to get their foods. This has nothing to do with unemployment. People are also today are not seeing doctors for routine medication, for routine treatment. People who have cancer, people who have diabetes, people of hypertension who are skipping doctor's appointments because of the quarantine. Those people are also at risk. And then there's the impacts on children who aren't going to school. So there's a tremendous amount of impacts that have not been modeled. And if we want to have good public policy in this country, you need to actually do a risk assessment and say, what are the full risks? You know, not let's not just look at the coronavirus deaths. Let's look at that, the deaths from the alternative coronavirus, which is quarantine. The Swedes did this, and they said it's not going to work. And they looked at it, and they, you know, the chief epidemiologist of Sweden said, we're going to go back to work, and we're not going to have any of these restrictions on, on you know, social distancing, et cetera. We're going to protect the elderly. And this is what you know, I think we all thought was going to happen. We would quarantine for a couple of weeks until the hospitals could gear up, till they could get the beds, they could get the ventilators, they could get the, um, the testing kits, they could get the uh, the drugs, like you know the, the the various therapeutics, you know the IV vitamin C treatments, the remdesivir, the chloroquine, or whatever, and then we would have an avalanche where all of the young people who are in good condition and we're not very vulnerable to this would come out and resume life as usual go to work go to play the we would keep isolated people who have chronic health conditions and the seniors and elderly because they're vulnerable and those people if you could show that you have a chronic health then we would pay their paychecks and take care of them and keep them isolated until the disease runs through the population and we develop a herd immunity, and then they're protected by that. And that, and then also, you know, by that time, we have better therapeutics that can really treat this disease. And that would be a plan that would, would not, you know, bankrupt generations of Americans. And, and that's what they're doing in Sweden. And what they say in Sweden is, yes, we do have a spike in death rates compared to Norway, which is quarantine. But a year from now, we're going to have, everybody's going to have the same death rate. Italy, the U.S., you know, Sweden, everywhere's going to have the, a year from now. They're going to all have the same death rate. Oh, we will still have an economy, and you will. And I think that's a risk, you know, that that is not being assessed. And you know, there's this deference given to scientists without actually answering the question: Is is this scientist equipped to actually give us advice on this issue? Or should we limit his advice to what his expertise is? Tony Fauci has zero training and zero capacity and has probably never read a single study about the cost of unemployment on public health. He knows about virology and immunology. He doesn't know anything about these other impacts. Why is he calling the shots? Why is he calling the shots? Well, I, you know, I think that is a combination of things, and, and some of it, a lot of it has to do with the, um, the, the incapacity, the, uh, the acquired incapacity of Anderson Cooper 
and CNN to scrutinize the orthodoxies of the pharmaceutical and medical cartels. They will not ask the questions. And, you know, if, they, if Tony Fauci tell them, tells them a flu shot is good for you, it's proven to work, they will believe that. They won't actually look at the science. And, you know, the Cochrane Collaboration which is the ultimate arbiter on science. The Cochrane Collaboration has looked at every published flu study. And what they've said is the flu vaccine does not work. It does not prevent deaths in the elderly. It actually enhances, um, it, it makes you more vulnerable to non-flu infections. Um, CNN every year, let me tell you this, Patrick, every year CNN releases flu death data. And that data is not real data, it's fake data. So, and I'll tell you what they do. They, the CDC actually does very good data gathering and it assembles the data on American health and death certificates in an index called the mortality and morbidity data. And if you go to the mortality and morbidity data, you can see how many flu deaths actually happen in America every year, but nobody does that. And instead, CNN reports every year that the flu deaths in this country were between 60,000 and 90,000. And they'll say it's worse than ever. It could be 95,000 deaths this year from flu. Take your flu shot. And if you go around and ask people, do you actually know anybody who's ever died of a flu? Most people will tell you no. If 95,000 people were dying every year of flu, we'd all know people who died of the flu. The truth is that the year they said 95,000, which was two years ago, there were 2,000 people who died of the flu. The average death rate for the flu over the past 20 years is around 1,000 people a year. And what they do is they conflate the mortality and morbidity data for pneumonia with the flu. And most, only 7% of pneumonia cases are actually caused by the flu, of pneumonia deaths. The rest of them are non-flu or, or uh, um, respiratory infections. So CNN just lies about that every year. And I don't think Sanjay Gupta and Anderson Cooper actually want to lie, but it's part of their gestalt. They're, you know, they're supposed to push the flu vaccine. They're supposed to scare the hell out of everybody and make everybody think they're going to die if they don't get it. Well, they do that. And they, the fact is that the flu does not kill that many people in this country. It's not a dangerous disease. And, it, um, and the flu vaccine, it causes a lot more harm than the flu does. For somebody that's watching this saying, uh, Robert, why is your data right and not their data? If you're saying only a thousand versus well, 60, I, then that's I, a big it, difference. Listen, nobody should trust me. And nobody should trust Anderson Cooper. And nobody should trust Tony Fauci. They should trust the science. And what I'm using is not my data. It's their data. And, you know, any, I've written a letter to Sanjay Gupta outlining all of the standard in a very polite, civil letter, but just saying, you know, Sanjay, I admire you a lot, and I know you're not deliberately doing this, but you say these things every year, and here's why each of them is wrong, according to CNN's data. Now, everything I say on my Instagram page, every single statement is sourced and cited. 
you can't do it on Instagram because Instagram doesn't let you link. So I always publish it first on Instagram because that's kind of my, you know, best um, platform. But I, I always, you know, usually within 24 hours, reprinted on Children's Health Defense website with all the sites and with all the sourcing there. But we don't say, if I said something that was untrue, people would be all over me. If I, you know, they, my enemies are watching everything that I say. The pharmaceutical industry is watching everything I say. So I am very, very careful that any public statement that I make is sourced. And, you know, if I, if, if I made a mistake, which I'm sure at some point it's possible for me to do, and somebody told me I made a mistake, I would immediately go and correct it. But we don't, you know, we have a whole staff of doctors, nurses, and scientists who review. I submit all of my, you know, my Instagram postings to them before I put them up. And I say, can you go through this and source everything and tell me if I've made a mistake? So, you know, we really are, are careful about making sure everything is sourced to peer review or to a government database. Uh, who's on your side, by the way? Because your position, I mean, I, I, uh, I saw the letter your family wrote to you. This was about a year ago. And, you know, RFK is our brother and uncle. He's tragically wrong about vaccines. We love RFK, but he's part of the misinformation campaign that's heartbreaking and deadly consequences. Who, who's on you? Because when you're talking, if somebody's listening that's in the middle, not big uh, person that's on a big pharma site, say they're CNN, Cooper, Guptal, or not somebody that's on the other side, but somebody that says, a lot of the stuff he's saying makes a lot of sense. Who else is on your side that's a big uh, name and a credible source? The, um, uh, you know, listen, we have a lot of doctors and nurses on our side and scientists who are on our side. Um, they're not household names. There are people who are known in the, you know, in scientific fields. For example, you know, the, the world's top scientist on African vaccines. It's a guy in Danish scientist called Peter A.A.B. He has hundreds upon hundreds of peer-reviewed publications, and he was always against us until he recently did a study on the DTB vaccine in Africa and, and, and showed that it's killing more people than diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. And that uh, girls who get the vaccine are 10 times more likely to die than people who don't get the vaccine. And so, and that brought him over, the data brought him over. So we have, you know, there are many, many doctors, but they don't, they don't want to put their heads up because their careers are destroyed. Scientists get their careers destroyed. Journalists lose their careers. People, this is, you know, this is a career killer. The reason that I'm, you know, my name is prominent is because I, you know, I have a track record and I'm a, a litigator. I argued all these important cases. I was on trial teams in the Monsanto cases and the, on the case, you know, Mark Ruffalo just made a movie about one of my cases, which was the, um, which was the DuPont case in, in Parkersburg, West Virginia. And, you know, I've been involved in hundreds of lawsuits. I've helped start hundreds of environmental groups. And I have a track record and I have friends and I have resilience because of that. And because of my family name also, I have a high profile resilience. But otherwise, the industry has spent 15 years, you know, battering me and besieging me, and I've lost a lot of 
friendships and I've lost a lot of uh, business relationships and other relationships and credibility with people who just believe, oh, who never hear my arguments. They never hear them. All they hear is, he's an anti-vaxxer. And they say, well, that's wrong. And I, you know, my family, even those three members of my family who wrote that article, I have a big family and I have supporters in the family too, but the three members who wrote that article accused me of being an anti-vaxxer. So, and I'm not, I've never said anything anti-vaccine. And, and I'm not anti-vaccine. What I've said is that vaccines should be safe and effective and that they shouldn't be mandated in any case. And, but if you can make a vaccine that is proven to be safe and proven to be effective, I wouldn't be against it. But let's do, let's walk through the proof. I'll, you know, if there's, I've spent 37 years trying to get mercury out of fish. Nobody calls me any fish. I spent 37 years trying to get pesticides out of food. Nobody calls me any food. I spent 30 years trying to get to, to improve fuel efficiency or get carbon fuel out of automobiles. My, you know, my partnership was the biggest investor in Tesla um, and the first investor in Tesla. And you know, I was part of a partnership that built the two biggest um, uh, solar plants in our country. I want to get I want to get carbon out of our energy system. Nobody calls me anti-energy. I'm not anti-vaccine. I just want say good science, robust science, independent regulators, and and safety. Oh, I've never said I was anti-vaccine. People call me that because it's a way of marginalizing me. It's a way of making people think I'm a crackpot, you know, and keeping me silent. And, and be censoring me because, you know, he's anti-vax, he's dangerous, don't let people hear him because it will spread like a virus. And so they keep me off of TV, they keep me off of social media, they keep me out of the newspapers, and it allows everybody, including three members of my family, to say, you know, we don't like what he says because he's anti-vax, but they never heard what I said. Do you, do you guys still do family reunions where everybody gets together? Oh, yeah. You know what? Patrick, I had 11 brothers and sisters. My parents encouraged us every night to get in arguments. And that's what we did. We always had one discussion at the dinner table. And we, you know, there would be topics and we would argue about them. Should, should I remember my father saying, you know, should we get out of Vietnam? Is it good to take LSD? Does God, <laughs> does God exist? You know, all of these things, they would throw them out, and then we would argue about them, and they would, you know, coach us on our arguments. My grandfather did the same thing to his kids. He'd say, you know, should we be in the, um, should we join the war in Spain? Is, is fascism good for Italy? You know, whatever. And, and make us argue it and encourage us to take extreme points of view and, and talk about them. So, like, if somebody in my family argues against my position, it's not troublesome to me, and, it, and in no way would that ever, ever affect my relationship with them. I, I understand, you know, we need debate. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be debating this stuff. Everybody should, and we should be able to do it without you know, without vitriol and without anger and, you know, and that's what you want in a civil society. You want civil debate and respect for other people's positions.
I posted something on Twitter earlier, and this is the question I asked. I said, what topic generally creates the most heated debate between you and your family? I'm just curious to know what people are going to say, right? And they said, you know, uh, uh, pro-life, pro-choice, you know, who's the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan or LeBron, some of them were sports. But the most, the most comment here, the one that came up the most was vaccine. Vaccine is the one that creates the most heated debate amongst people. Why do you think that is? Well, it's clear on why it is, because we're doing something that we've never done before. We're telling people, um, you have to take this medication. And we're taking doctors who, you know, had this sacred for 2,000 years since Hippocrates, had a sacred relationship with the patient where that doctor is treating you and owes you his complete allegiance, his silence, his confidentiality, his best judgment about your condition, and is trying to heal you. We've now profoundly and dramatically changed the role of the doctor. And the doctor is now the agent of state power and state policy. And he's saying, even though you're a completely healthy kid, I'm going to give you a risky medication so that you can protect somebody else, allegedly. You know, which basically, which, by the way, that ain't true. You're much more likely to get chickenpox from a vaccinated person or measles than you are from an unvaccinated person. Much more likely. You're much more likely to get polio from a vaccinated person than an unvaccinated. 70% of the polio in the world is vaccine strain. That means you got it from a vaccinated person. Oh, that is a mythology that unvaccinated people are dangerous. Is the fact if you look at the the manufacturer's insert for chickenpox, it says on the manufacturer's insert, after you receive this vaccine, do not be in proximity of pregnant women or immunocompromised people for six weeks. Nobody ever does that. They go to back to school the next day and they spread the chickenpox. And you know, pertussis, you become an asymptomatic carrier. You're spreading pertussis, whereas if you actually were unvaccinated and you got pertussis, you wouldn't know it. You'd get a whooping cough and you'd stay home and you wouldn't be spreading it. When you're given the pertussis vaccine, you got it. Well, you don't know you got it, but you're spreading it to other people. And, you know, and, and so the vaccines are actually more likely to spread disease than if you're unvaccinated. 1961, your uncle, uh, President John F. Kennedy, urged 80 million Americans, including almost 5 million children who had not been vaccinated for polio, to receive the Salk vaccine, which he called the miraculous drug. Do you think he would have the same position today as he did in 1961? Uh, you know, I don't want to speak to my uncle, I'm for my uncle. Of course, he, he was for that. And we, we only had two vaccines then. You know, I had the polio Salk vaccine. We didn't know any of the problems with vaccines. We didn't have, you know, most of the vaccines today, polio was a healthcare crisis. Most of the vaccines, when they put all these vaccines on a schedule, almost none of them were dangerous diseases, casually contagious diseases that were going to spread. Why do we need a hepatitis B vaccine? Hepatitis B vaccine is given to every child the day they're born. And... The only way you can get it from your mom if she has it when you're being born, but every mother is tested in every hospital, in every state in this country. So that's a very small amount of kids, and they, 
you can give them the vaccine. The only other way you get that hepatitis B is from um, is from sex, you know, and or from hypodermic needle, unprotected sex or hypodermic needles. That little child is at zero risk. Why are we giving them that vaccine? Hepatitis B vaccine was manufactured by Merck for male homosexuals who had who had a plague of hepatitis B because of the kind of sex they were having, and and for heroin addicts, and but those and for prostitutes, and that's it. That's why they developed it. And guess what happened? None of those people used the vaccine. They couldn't sell any of them, so they went back. Merck went back to CDC and said, we're not selling this product. It's a loss leader for us. Um, order it given to children. And CDC does whatever Merck tells them. They ordered it for every child. Now, the vaccine only lasts two years. So that child is not going to sleep with a prostitute between the day they're born and the day they're two years old. Or the day they're 10 and they're given five of those vaccines because they only last two years. The only reason for that vaccine, the only reason, is to enrich that company. And it kills lots and lots and lots of kids every year. That's one. There's many other vaccines that are clearly killing today more children than they're saving. Another one of those um, would be the rotavirus vaccine. Which again, was got on the, you know, not, did, did you grow up with a great fear of rotavirus? No. No. Of course not. It wasn't a threatening disease in our, you know, our generation or any generation. It's not a threatening. There are more rotavirus cases today, which is, you know, a couple hundred deaths a year, than there were before the rotavirus vaccine. And the rotavirus vaccine contains a, um, a port virus, a pig virus, because it's made on pig tissue, that we know causes cancer and behavioral problems in pigs. Why would we give that, why would we take the risk and give that vaccine to every American child? They have no idea whether it's causing those cancers in, in kids. Um, and if you go through these vaccines one at a time and you say, do we really need this vaccine? Most of them is, no, we don't. And, and prior to 85, almost none of them existed. 80% of the vaccines we have we're after 85 and there weren't huge, you know, epidemics of infectious diseases killing Americans at that time, even measles. Measles mortalities had, had 99% disappeared prior to the introduction of the vaccine. In 63, there were only 400 kids who died of measles in, out of a population of 200 million Americans. They were almost all black children the Mississippi Delta, who were actually dying of malnutrition. And this was before the poverty programs. And, you know, the likelihood is measles mortality would have disappeared altogether. And now measles is going to come back and cause us a lot of problems because the vaccine is, um, is doing things. It's forcing measles to older populations and much younger populations who should not be getting measles. There, there's data saying that measles is back on uh, increase. Uh, 110,000 people are now dying from measles every year. Matter of fact, that's in the same letter that your family wrote. But, you know, th this leads me to something here right now because World Health Organization... And, and by the way, there's a lot of problems with that data. If you look in the United States, there's zero measles deaths. Zero. 
And the people who are now getting measles are older people. The last epidemic in California, 79% of the people who got measles were adults. And you're not, adults are not supposed to get measles. World Health Organization and little babies are now getting it when they're, you know, two weeks old. And they used to have maternal immunity, but the vaccine doesn't give you that. And they're too young to get the vaccine. A lot of those kids are going to end up dying. The measles and they, you know, the World Health data, which you just read, is there's a lot of scams in collecting that data. And the kids who, are, who die of measles today are, are severely malnourished kids in Africa. And, you know, the problem is, is nourishment. Measles disappeared in this country when we started having good sanitation and good nutrition. And, I, you know, again, that's not me saying it. The CDC did a major study on, on this mythology that vaccines eradicated all these mortalities from infectious diseases. Their conclusion from that, which is on my Instagram, anybody can read their study with a quote, Johns Hopkins and CDC, thus vaccination had almost nothing to do with the disappearance of disease mortalities in the first half of the 20th century. Vaccines didn't do it. It was nutrition. It was sanitation. It was good food, electric refrigeration, um, chlorinated water, and, uh, and electricity. And that's what eradicated disease. And that's why they still have disease in Africa. Now, you see World Health Organization also says that because of vaccines, it prevents 6 million deaths per year. So if, if yeah, they... That's a, I, there's no... There's really no good way to um, to, to to ascertain or to judge that data. You know, there's not. They can't point to a country, for example. They'll say the DPT vaccine saves millions of lives, and it is the their most popular vaccine. It's the most popular vaccine in the world. They're giving to every kid in Africa, and they they gauge national compliance with disease with with um, with vaccine mandates by that vaccine. A World Health Organization funds most of the, the ministries of health for all these African countries, and it funds their HIV program. So those countries are very dependent on World Health Organization, and World Health Organization has a dictatorial control over those countries. It can tell them, you must take this vaccine, or we're not going to give you AIDS money. And so they do it. So they all take the DBT vaccine, and nobody's ever really looked to see whether the DPT vaccine is actually saving lives. Oh, so in 2017, the Danish government got the best scientists in the world, and one of the world's biggest vaccine companies, Staten Serum Institute, put together a study, they brought together the best scientists in the world, and they looked at populations in the nation of Guinea-Bissau, where half the kids were vaccinated before, between two and five months of age and half were. So they had a perfect natural experiment, randomized populations, half unvaccinated, half vaccinated, and they looked at the health impacts and what they found. When they, after 30 years of data, they found that the vaccine, you were 10 times more likely to die if you got the vaccine than if you didn't. Oh, WHO, it, it, the, the authors of that study, I've been screaming at the rooftops at WHO 
you got to stop using this vaccine. you got to reassess this. And WHO is still going around claiming it saves lives, but it's a lie. It's a provable lie. And that study, by the way, any of your listeners can look it up, and I encourage you to do so. It's called Morganson, M-O-R-G-E-N-S-E-N et al., in other words, and the team, um, 2017, and the, the journal is called eBioPharma. And, you know, so that, the, the idea that they're saving 6 million lives a year, there's no data that supports that. Which one of those organizations do, do, you, give a, a, do, do you give a lot of credibility to? Well, like, here's the problem. You know, I'm not against the agencies. I, you know, I'm, my, my whole life has been trying to, you know, to build agencies and, and, um, and assure integrity in them. But all of those agencies are what we call captive agencies. They are run by the industry. WHO gets half of its budget from pharmaceutical companies and 10% of its budget from Bill Gates. The European Medical Agency gets half of its budget from pharmaceutical companies. The FDA gets half of its budget from pharmaceutical companies. The CDC spends 45% of its budget on vaccines. And so, you know, it, it, we shouldn't have that situation. Those companies should not be taking any money from the industries they're supposed to regulate. And because of that, they are owned by those industries and we're not getting good science, we're not getting good policy, and we're not getting good regulation. Robert, you know, the topic of autism obviously has a lot to do with vaccine and it's, it's part of this entire conversation that we're having. Have, have scientists and proper research been able to prove what causes autism? Well, listen, the, 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 the answer to that is that those studies have not systematically been done. There are many, many studies that link autism to vaccines. We have listed on our website um, several hundred studies saying, uh, suggesting in various ways that not only do vaccines cause autism, but actually looking at the specific mechanisms by which they cause autism. So I don't think there's any scientific question that vaccines cause autism if you actually read the science. The problem is CDC has, um, has, uh, has ginned up 17 studies. All those studies have flaws. And those studies are all epidemiological studies, meaning they're populations. So none of them are animal studies. None of them are pharmacological studies. None of them are toxicity studies. And those studies um, are, you know, they looked at big populations and they said, we couldn't find a link here. But the problem is they were all done by pharmaceutical industry scientists. None of them did. And they all either look at one vaccine, the MMR, which is given when the children are quite old, um, and then two, thimerosal. So that's the only vaccine, one vaccine has ever been studied. And it's not the biggest suspect. So the, the suspects are the five vaccines that are given during the first five months of life. None of them have ever been studied. And the Institute of Medicine which is the ultimate arbiter of vaccine science. You don't have to listen to Bobby Kennedy. The Institute of Medicine 
is looks over the shoulder at CDC and HHS and tells them whether they actually have done the studies that are necessary. The IOM looked at all the vaccine studies that have been done in 91, in 94, in 2011, and in 2014. And what they said in every one of those findings is they've said CDC has never done the studies that it needs to do. And they've scolded, they've chided, they've begged, they've pleaded, and CDC has refused to do those studies. Oh, what I'm saying, CDC does not have those studies that show the link. Independent scientists have done those studies. If you want to see them, come to our website, Children's Health Defense, and we have them outlined there. And you can read the abstracts, you can read the whole study, you can make up your own mind. But I've made up mine, and it's very, very clear. What, what are, what, there's a terrific book by J.B. Hanley called How to End the Autism Epidemic, which is a really good summary of, um, of the current science. What, so so what, are, what are pro-vaccine folks saying causes autism? What are anti-vaccine folks saying causes autism? Well, the, the pro-vaccine folks are in a bad position. Because what they have to say is they can't really... What, what they'll say is, well, CDC has these studies that show it doesn't cause autism. And that's the only studies they look at. They won't look at the hundreds of studies that show it does. They just look at those 17 studies. Institute of Medicine has said those studies are no good. But, so what they do is they take the tact of saying something that's so absurd that's laughable. They say there is no autism epidemic. That people are just noticing autism more. And, you know, anybody, I mean, I listen, I grew up, as I said, on the spirit tip of, of you know, intellectual disabilities. I was around, I, you know, I was working in Special Olympics from when I was a kid. We never saw kids that were, that had actually full-blown autism like what you see today. But here's the real, the real rebuttal to that claim, that autism, we're just doing better diagnoses today. If that were true, then where are all the 66-year-old men with, with full-blown autism? in my entire life, having worked in Wasaic Home for the Retarded, having worked in Special Olympics, I have never seen somebody my age with full-blown autism. A man walking in the mall, wearing diapers, wearing a helmet, head-banging, non-verbal, non-toilet train, stimming, toe-walking. You don't see it. I've never seen it in my life. And yet, you know, it's one in 34 kids in my, um, in my children's generation, in the vaccine generation. And so the question is, you cannot credibly say it's always been with us, because if it's always been with us, it would still be here in my generation. And they've been saying that since 2004. And yet, even since 2004, it's gone up six or 700 percent. Oh, it's still climbing. And so it's, it's completely incredible. And what they really try to do is avoid having the conversation. Nobody's going to have this debate with me. Nobody's going to sit down and argue to my face. Also, there's a lot of science. UC Davis did a study. There's, there's dozens of studies that say, no, the autism epidemic is real. 
it's happening, it's affecting kids, it's not affecting adults, and, you know, we don't know where it's coming from. It, it, if a debate could be set up, who'd be the main prominent voice for you to debate against? Well, the, the best people for me to debate would be uh, Fauci, um, but, they're, they're, you know, Fauci can say, I'm a government official, I'm not going to lower myself to debate you. There's a lot of academics, people like Ian Lipkin at Columbia, um, Peter Hotez at Baylor University in Texas, who, and these are people who have thrust themselves to the forefront of defending vaccines. Um, Paul Offit, um, um, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Yep. These are vaccine developers. They're people who are at the forefront. They're people who have deliberately, go, they're the ones who go on TV, go on CNN, go on Fox, go on, you know, write articles from the New York Times, have thrust themselves to the forefront of this. None of them will debate me. They're all terrified. They will not. And it's not because I'm a great debater. It's because they know that the science speaks for itself. And I do know the science and I know it backward and forward. I know it in many cases better than they do because I actually am looking at it critically. And I've seen the studies they cite and I know what the flaws are in them. And, and they have not, you know, I've sent them the studies I cite, but I know they don't read them because they send me back nonsense or nothing at all. And none of them will debate me. And in fact, if anybody else tries to debate me, like for example, Several months ago, the Connecticut City Legislature was um, considering a bill to repeal vaccine exemptions. And they asked me to come to Connecticut and debate, do a debate. And then they, they tried to stack the debate against me. So they put five Yale virologists and immunologists to come to that debate. And I was going to have eight minutes and each one of them were going to have eight minutes. Always stack against me, but I was I was okay with those odds because I know I'm going to win that debate anyway. I flew across the country and got there, and nobody showed up. And that's oh. happened to me dozens of times where people agree to debate me, but then they get the memo. People call them, people contact them, and say you cannot debate him. Oh, uh, nobody will debate me. Well, if we can coordinate it, you're open to it. Yes, if. Oh we're... yeah, I, in a minute, I'll debate anybody anytime. Okay, good. Yeah, well, that's good to know on our end, we'll see what we can do if we can get creative there. By the way, just, just for education purposes, what's the difference between the 1986 Act when they came out with the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act versus the 2011 Brusovitz versus uh, Wyatt? The, the Brusowitz case was interpreting the Act. So what happened is the Act said you have to go. You, the act actually, the, the Brusewitz case really killed us and killed people who were vaccine injured. There were 5,400 people who said, my kid got autism from a vaccine and they all descended on the vaccine court at once. And, you know, the, the act, the 1986 act set up a vaccine court where you're not suing the company that injured you. You're suing, the, you're petitioning the United States government for redress because the vaccine act recognize vaccines cannot be safely made they're unavoidably unsafe that's the quote and that we have to therefore people who get injured by vaccines by mandatory vaccines are are, are making a sacrifice for the nation they should be fairly compensated and so they set up a vaccine court that was supposed to instantly pay them 
and the vaccine court got overwhelmed. And immediately got 5,400 people coming in and saying, my child got autism from the vaccine. It would have bankrupted the whole program overnight. So they had to get rid of those cases. And the government fought them and fought them and fought them for years. It finally ended up in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, the way the act was set up is that you could go to the vaccine court and get your compensation. But if you didn't like the settlement, you could withdraw and you could go to a regular court. And so, you know, we weren't completely foreclosed. People who were injured could still get redressed. The Supreme Court gave us this wacky decision that said that if you do leave the vaccine court and go to regular court, they cannot give you, they cannot give you an award for product liability. In other words, you can't sue them like you can sue anybody else. You know, your, your product was dangerous. I took it, I got injured, give me the money, you know, give me redress, make me whole. You, you can't do that. So you can sue them for fraud, but you cannot sue them for product liability. So it basically threw us out of court. We, we have no jury trial, you know, and no trial. Most people are injured. The vaccine court won't even hear their cases. That's an interesting story. It's the story of uh, the, the little girl, Hannah, right? I think it's a five-year-old. Uh, uh, Hannah was one of the stories that was brought up. Yeah, Hannah Pauling was an eight-year-old who eight -year -old. got autism from a vaccine. And they, the, the problem was that um, they, her father was a neurologist, a famous neurologist from Johns Hopkins. And her mother was a nurse and a lawyer. And this girl was a very gifted girl. She exceeded all her milestones. She was right. And they had lots of video. Right up to the day that she took that, uh, those vaccines, she got into her uh, 36 month wellness visit. She got a battery of vaccines and she lost her brain. She went, you know, the lights went off and they had before and after and they had professional doctors who had observed everything that happened and, um, and they had to get rid of it. And that was one of the bellwether cases. So if, if she, the way that they decided this case and that these cases, 5,400 cases of vaccine court, they said, we're not going to try them all. We'll try six of them. And if any of those six wins, then we'll try them all. And so they really were under pressure to get rid of all six of those. And unfortunately for them, Hannah Pauling's case was won, and there was no way for them to win it. So what they did was they secretly went into a back room uh, paid $20 million to her family and said, keep your mouth shut. We're going to seal this case. We're going to drop it from the bellwether cases and substitute another one. And that's how they defrauded all those people out of their, you know, compensation and vaccine court. Is, is that proven? The parent, oh yeah, the parents are, you know, were very, very troubled, but they kind of had to do what was right for their daughter. And their daughter really needed lifetime care. And the parents immediately took the deal, but then immediately petitioned to the court for a, um, for a full disclosure. They, they filed a motion for full transparency so that, because they thought they'd get a chance to, even if they signed the deal and it got sealed and they made the agreement, they wouldn't talk about it, that the court wouldn't allow that. Uh, in the end, the court refused to hear their petition, and they were stuck keeping their mouths shut for years. And then it came out, and you know, I'm, 
uh, friends and allies with her, her parents, and her parents have spent their lives, you know, fighting for these other children. Very, very interesting. Uh, 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 I didn't, I didn't know about the twenty million dollars. Um, and respect to the family, to wanting to make it public so everybody knew. By the way, Bill Gates, you know, you, you had a post that uh, you put, it, put on Instagram. It got a lot of comments. Uh, there were a lot of things you said about him. When I bring up uh, Bill Gates in a lot of conversations, most people will say, good man, doing good things. Most of them will bring up the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation. And, you know, you hear Melinda Gates talking about the fact that we're getting closer to wiping several deadly diseases off the face of the planet, uh, but we couldn't, we could easily blow it. I think in an article she talked about how when they started it in 2000, they put nearly $50 billion of money into it, and polio has gone from 350,000 cases in 88 to 2017 having only 22, and 2018 being only 29. Uh, what is your opinion of the global vaccine action plan that Mil uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is financially backing and and again, I don't want to read the entire Instagram post, but what is your thoughts and opinions on Bill and Melinda Gates? Well, I mean, you know, I, the devil is in the details. And as it turns out, that polio vaccine, which they said was going to eradicate polio, has actually caused polio epidemics around the world in places where they haven't seen polio in decades, like the Philippines, like the Congo, like Afghanistan, um, and in India. Um, around 490,000 kids have been paralyzed. Oh, you know, for them to say that, it, you know, we're almost there, and it's, uh, I'm sure what Bill and Melinda Gates will try to do at one point is to blame it on anti-vaxxers, but even WHO admits that 70% of the polio today on Earth is coming from Gates' vaccine. Oh, it was a bad idea. The vaccine was ba is badly flawed, um, and the way that they used it was uh, harebrained. You know, they're giving kids 50 polio inoculations um, or immunizations before age five, and those kids are, you know, the polio is coming out in their fecal material, so it spreads the disease, and. Um, and that's what they did in the Congo. But you can, you know, when, when you look, when people look at polio and public health, people look at polio, they can tell whether that polio is wild polio, it's vaccine polio. And 70% of the cases now on earth, at least, are vaccine polio. And that means Gates' vaccine. Um, you know, you're asking me kind of a broader question about why, what is Gates up to? I think that Gates is well-intended the way that, you know, missionaries who brought smallpox to the Indians were well-intended. Um, I think he also, he believes that he is somehow ordained by, you know, divinely to bring salvation to the world through technology. And I think that notion is probably fortified by his experience with Microsoft where he really did change humanity and the planet and the way that we you know communicate with each other and but he really sees a vaccine or technology in general as salvation and I think that that is giving him a blindness um, and statisticians call that have a name for that blindness and it is called confirmation bias or he will, he will see and incorporate and integrate data 
that supports his worldview, and he refused to see data that don't, like the, like the DTP study I was telling you about by Morganson. How can he continue to insist that African children get that shot when he knows it's probably killing millions of kids? And yet there's a hard-headedness that is, I don't think it's from, you know, saying, I'm gonna, not going to admit a mistake, I'm going to kill millions of African children, but I think it's that I'm not going to look at the possibility that this could have been an error. And I'm going to dig my heels in. And, he died, you know, he, the same thing happened in India. He was thrown out of India because um, of an experiment that he did on 26,000 illiterate tribal girls in the Northern Territories where he tested a very, very dangerous HPV vaccine on them. And I think 2,600 um, had either lost their capacity to have children or have horrendous autoimmune diseases. And when the Indian government went in there horrified to investigate, they found out that Gates' operatives had, you know, had bullied these families into signing, um, uh, you know, confirmation agreements um, that, and they were illiterate, that they didn't understand, they, consent agreements um, that they didn't understand, et cetera. And that they, they treated unethically, they weren't providing medical care to the kids they injured or anything like that. So um, he had a similar scandal with a couple of malaria vaccines that they experimented. They did these really horrendous experiments in Africa. I think he believes it's okay because he believes so strongly the vaccine is going to save people that, you know, the people that he experiments on are collateral damage and that, you know, but it's kind of a, it's a worrying posture that, you know, somebody with that much power um, also believes that he is able to play with people's lives and, it, and he's willing to ignore data. Um, so uh, in the, his other fixations are GMO crops. And, and the, this is another problem with Gates, is he tends, and the nation did an expose on this a couple of weeks ago, that he invest, his personal investments and his, um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation investments tend to be in companies that, um, that benefit from his philanthropical activities. So he's very, very, very heavily invested in vaccine companies that are making a killing for the policies that he is pushing. He's very invested in Monsanto. He's pushing GMO crops and chemical fertilizers all over Africa, many places where they're clearly inappropriate. And he's very much invested in 5G, which is kind of sinister. And he's you know, putting a lot of satellites, hundreds of satellites in orbit, He's putting ten, owns tens of thousands of ground antenna that are not there. And that, that, you know, what his, one of his companies is promising is that they will be able to do surveillance with one second delay on every corner of the earth, literally every corner of the earth. And he also, so, and 5G is not about helping you download your video game quickly. You know, that's what they're telling you on these glossy ads on TV, but that has nothing to do with you care if it takes you 20 seconds or 10 seconds to you know, download a video game. It's not going to really change your life. 5G has nothing to do with that. 5G is about um, surveillance, and it's about data harvesting. The biggest repository of wealth in the world right now is not gold, it's not oil, it's data.
And we now have a capacity uh, by connecting all these devices. It's called the connectedness of things. You connect your Apple Watch to the, to the internet. You connect your microwave oven, you know, it's a smart microwave. You connect your Alexis, which is listening to your conversations all day. Your Siri, which is listening to your cell phone, which is listening to your conversations. You, you, can, you know what your buying habits are. You know your heart rate. You know everything about you. And all that information is data that, if it is characterized in an archive, is useful and saleable because it's telling these companies the behaviors that will trigger buying um, uh, reactions by you. They know specifically how to target you, where to target you, what time of the day, what kind of music that you like, what kind of what is going to appeal to you and get your attention and get you to buy stuff. And those algorithms are so powerful that they're almost irresistible. And that's what he's harvesting. So he, you know, it's, he's going to be able to look at through facial recognition, have complete control of our society. You know, the other day. There were surfers who were, um, the police were down at Point Down, which is near where I live, and they were giving surfers $1,000 tickets, right? And so that's pretty offensive. But you can say, well, that was just overreaction, just an appalling judgment by these police, ticketing people from going in the ocean, the sunshine where you're supposed to be, you know, to, to boost your immune system. And, um, but... Imagine if you don't need the police. Imagine if we live in a world where your movements are being tracked by satellites and by facial recognition and by GPS and by you know, on your car, on your cell phone, so that at every moment of the day, the authorities know where you are and corporations know where you are. So when you go to the beach, they don't have to arrest you. They just send you a $1,000 bill, but not only, they don't just send it to you. They, they just take it directly out of your cryptocurrency, you know, paycheck account. And we're all being, you know, by this, particularly this pandemic, is training us with new kinds of behavior to do what we're told, to accept this kind of surveillance, to accept these constraints on our, on our civil rights, to, to allow the government to come in and tell us, you stay at home, you don't go to the beach, you don't, you don't send your kids to school. You don't leave your house and actually accept those kind of orders. One of the companies, he's got many companies that are installing chips to, that will carry around your medical records, but they'll also be capable of, of carrying around your other data so that if a cop you know, pulls you over for speeding, he can scan you and look at your criminal record, look at your buying history, see if you've been to a liquor store recently. And, you know, do we really, and then he's got another Microsoft, Microsoft just patented a chip system that is a biometric subdermal um, sensor system. So it will actually be able to sense brain waves and, um, and body um, signals like heart rate, et cetera. And it will, it will assign you tasks. In other words, you will get a message on your phone to do certain tasks and your task will be look at a certain ad when it appears on TV in 30 seconds. Listen to this music, walk down this aisle in this grocery store. 
and then it will monitor your 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 monitor your EEG, your brain waves, your heart rate, your adrenaline, all of this kind of stuff, and it feeds that information to marketing companies, and you then get paid for doing that task with cryptocurrency that goes directly into your account. So you know these companies like uh, Elon Musk, who also controls all the satellites, and Gates, you know, are going to be putting us all out of business. Half the people in this country make some of their living driving a car. Well, now they're going to give us, you know, these uh, driverless cars, and you're going to have a lot of Americans who are permanently unemployed, and they're going to, you know, want these chips because you can make money by doing these tasks, by playing a video game or whatever. And it's going to—it's basically a process of turning us all into production units, all into enslaved consumers, and um, you know, with total surveillance all the time. He has another chip, which will turn off your ovaries, and you know, in a wirelessly. Well, I'm not making this up. In fact, I'm going to publish on it in two days, and you know, with all source and everything else. And so you you can look for it on Children's Health Defense um, and on my Instagram, and you'll see that these things are real. They're not just from some horrible nightmare. They're real, and they're happening now. And this pandemic is allowing them to change our lives and change our country and and put us under you know into a permanent surveillance state. What what would you rank him as the most powerful man in the world? Well, he's. He's the most powerful man in public health because he owns the WHO. He gives 10% of their budget and that, you know, but that 10%, that marginal 10% is the 10% that they'll beg and roll over for, you know? And so he has changed. WHO used to do something that was really good, which is they understood that developed that disease is a, um, is a symptom of, poverty, and that if you want to stop um, disease, you you do development, you do nutrition, you do clean water, you do sanitation. That's what they were doing. And Gates came in there and said, we don't want to do that. And, you know, we're going to do a little of that. Uh, we're going to shift everything toward vaccines. And so, you know, because he doesn't understand that good health comes from good immune system, good nutrition, good water, clean water, exercise, um, you know, wholesome lives. He believes the only path to good health is inside the syringe. And so now half the WHO's budget goes to his, his pet polio eradication program, which is spreading polio. That's not a good thing for anybody. Have you had a conversation with him? Have you and him ever I've written a lot asking to talk to him. Never respond, never gone back to you. Have you, have you, uh, I know you went to the White House and you were getting ready to be part of some kind of a, a Trump's, com uh, President Trump's committee. Have you been communicating with President uh, Trump or Mike Pence recently about any of this stuff or uh, no? Not recently. During their first, uh, let's say, four or five months, I, we had a lot of meetings um, with them, but then uh, they took a different direction. You know, they gave after. Uh, President Trump, who was at that time uh, a president-elect, called me over Christmas and he asked me to come to, to New York and meet with him in Trump Tower. And I went 
and met with him and Pence and Steve Bannon and Rance Priebus and Hope Hill and, um, you know, his sons and uh, Kellyanne Conway. And we had a meeting and he asked me to be, um, to run a vaccine safety commission. And that got announced. Um, he asked me actually to go to a press conference that day and announce it. And um, it got announced. And then um, but immediately after that announcement, it was a, you know, a huge blowback. But one of the things that happened is Pfizer immediately made a million dollar donation to the inaugural party. And then President Trump um, put Alex Azar, who was a hand-picked Pfizer lobbyist in charge of HHS, he put Gottlieb, who was also hand-picked by Pfizer as head of CDC. And we had these really good meetings during the first part of the administration, but as soon as those guys came in, they shut us down and they said, we're not going to talk to you anymore. May not be a bad time for an open letter. What? May not be a bad time for an open letter from you. This may not be a bad time for an open letter from you. Um, well, you know, the problem with an open letter is that you have to go to the CHD's website to read it because no newspaper will print anything that we write. You know what's crazy is you sound like a libertarian. You don't sound like a Democrat. I mean, you. you, well, I, I, you know, I definitely. I've always been a free market. You know, my whole environmental. Um, I'm really for personal freedoms. That's what I'm for. I, I'm not a libertarian in the, because I don't believe in the commons that you, you do need government regulation in the commons. And in other words, nobody ever built a sewage treatment plant, um, you know, because they wanted to. There's no money in building a sewage treatment plant. There never will be. And so you, if you're going to pollute the publicly owned resources, air, water, wildlife, fisheries, public land, you need regulation in the commons. There's actually an economic law called the tragedy of the commons that, you know, that lays that out. It's all of our economic interests to catch the last fish in the ocean. It's not in society's interest. And the role of government is to make sure that that doesn't happen to regulate the fishery. But when you talk about private property, I am a libertarian. I believe in free market capitalism. I believe that the market is, um, the best way to end environmental pollution at all pollution is about subsidies and that, you know, um, and, and about large powerful entities using political clout to escape the discipline of the free market and force the public to pay their cost of production. So I, you know, when I, when I speak about the environment to a group of Republicans, I almost always get standing ovations. You know, because um, I'm so aligned with, um, you know, I, I think mainstream classic historical American thinking about how markets work. I think I would, you know, I think Milton Freeman would be very um, uh, happy with the way that I talk about those things. Yeah, no, um, and uh, I'm a product of Milton Friedman. Obviously, you see him back here in the painting. Uh, you you sound like a lot of that. By the way, uh, last couple minutes here before we wrap up, I'd like to, uh, you said something here about your family rituals. One of the things you said every night, we were encouraged to argue and debate and constantly do that. What were some of the Kennedy family rituals that you guys had? Well, we, I mean, there was, you know, our family was really Catholic family. We went to church when I was a kid. I went to church at least, I mean, I went to church um, oftentimes once or twice a day. 
we said uh, prayers before and after every meal. We said a rosary, sometimes three rosaries a day. We read the Bible every night. Um, and, you know, then we played a lot of sports, a lot of outdoor activities. Um, and, uh, you know, and my father loved the wilderness and he took us mountain climbing. He taught us all how to whitewater kayak. Um, you know, we were all uh, scuba diving and doing uh, whitewater from, you know, at, at a time when not many people were doing those things. And, my, you know, my father was, and all of my family, I think, were really interested in, in the wilderness, the outdoors. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I had a wonderful, wonderful, magical life. And, you know, I'm really grateful to God that I, you know, I got to do all these things. Did you spend a lot of time with your grandfather? Yeah, I did. What, what do you remember about him? Because he's he's one of the most interesting characters. When I was getting my Series 7 with Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, and I took a Dearborn class to take my Series 7, they started teaching about SEC, and then your, his name came up. Joe's, I mean, I'm, so I'm curious about his character. How was he? What do you remember about him? Uh, you know, he was, I think the best thing you can say, first of all, a lot of people, there's a lot of garbage about my grandfather out there. People say he was a bootlegger, and which is laughable, you know, there's never, he, nobody even made that claim um, during, until after 1964. But my grandfather, as you know, he had been through three separate Senate confirmations. He was the first head of the SEC. He was the, um, and you know, really with Roosevelt saved Wall Street. He was the ambassador to Great Britain during World War II. He was um, the head of the um, Maritime Commission. And these were, when he was a young man, he was the youngest bank president in our country after he graduated from Harvard. He, was, he worked as a, a bank examiner for a couple of years, and then he, um, he took over a, a bank that was the target of a hostile takeover by a big national conglomerate. It was a local bank in Boston that his father had been involved in. He went and he took it over and he made it a success story. And then he went out to Hollywood and he made hundreds of films out here. He started one of the biggest studios, started art, helped start an RKO. After my uncle died, there was, you know, the CIA, I've written a book about the CIA's relationship with my family, about its 70-year battle with my family. And there was a guy in the CIA called Sam Alburn, whose job was to tar the Kennedy name. So a lot of the bad things that you hear about my family, including this, um, this rumor that my uncle was, a, my grandfather was a bootlegger, came from Sam Alburn. It's absurd to think he was. My grandfather had so many enemies including, you know, he was despised um, because he was the only guy from Wall Street who had supported Roosevelt. And if he'd had anything like that in his past, if his past had not been squeaky clean, he would have been completely obliterated in those Senate confirmation hearings, which were at least as vicious as they are today. And he would never have gotten the appointment to Great Britain if he'd been a bootlegger or the head of the SEC. He couldn't have done that. And Roosevelt asked him, is there anything in your past? that, you know, would come back on us because I'm terrified about these hearings. And my, my grandfather said, I have never done anything that would, um, that, would, uh, that would tar the name or injure my reputation because of my children. And, but his, you know, the best part, I used to go 
horseback riding with him every morning. He would take us. He was he was extremely punctual. If you were one minute late, um, he would be gone. Uh, he would never wait for anybody, and he would never keep anybody waiting. And um, he would, when we went to dinner at his house, we all, the families all took turns going to dinner at his house. We all lived in one compound. And he would question us. He, my grandmother would question us on, um, on, on they, would, they would make us look at maps of the whole world on their wall, and they'd say, find Karachi, tell us where Zanzibar is. They'd tell us, they'd ask us um, about the roots of words, about whether they were Latin or Greek. Um, they would uh, ask us to speak Spanish or French. My grandmother would cut out, uh, would write down quotes or, or take clippings out of the newspaper, and she would pin them to her sweater, and then she would take these long walks with us and pull the pins off the sweater and ask us questions about it. And we were constantly being quizzed by them, and they were constantly asking us to argue, to make arguments, to, you know, to take positions on issues. And it was really, it was a magical way to grow up. I love that. I lo oh, is it true the fact that your grandfather sat down his son and says, which one of you guys going to be a president first? What, was no. Okay. Of course and, not. And, and no, was it no, was he, he encouraged? That's not the way that he talked to them. What he, what he tried to do is really instill in them a, a love for public affairs and a knowledge about it. And he, he sent, he hated uh, Harold Lasky, who was a very famous communist professor at the London School of Economics. And he, yep. uncle, I mean, my grandfather despised communism. But he sent all of his kids to study under Lasky because he wanted them to be able to make up their own minds about life. And then he, wow. you know, and he made sure that they visited, uh, that they became, they all became journalists first. And so that they could tour the world, that they could speak to people wherever he was, whether he was in a cab or whatever, he would always be talking to people and asking them about their lives. And all of my um, you know, that generation was constantly interrogating people, whether they were fishmongers or commercial fishermen or cab drivers, you know, they, as, as soon as they sat down with somebody, they would be asking questions about it. So my grandfather, um, you know, certainly he grew up in a political family. His, his father was um, a state senator um, and he was a political leader, very respected political leader in Boston, very honest, honest man, P.J. Kennedy. His grandparents had come over from Ireland in the famine, um, and, you know, they, the Irish were just breaking into politics in Boston at that time. His father-in-law, my grandmother's father, Honey Fizz, was really the first Irish Catholic mayor of Boston. His name was Honey Fitz, and he had a beautiful, he was called Honey Fitz, Fitzgerald, because he had a beautiful Irish tenor and he would sing at the crowds. Um, he would do these torchlight parades um, where they would go out on a flatbed truck that was hauled by mules or by a truck and um, there would be a piano on it and my grandmother, you know, who was a beautiful pianist from when she was a teen, would play the piano and he would sing Sweet Adeline to the crowds and he would gather a big crowd and then he give these speeches but they were you know so they grew up in a political milieu and it was at a time when the irish when they arrived here had been forbidden for 800 years from participating in politics 
And so when they arrived on these shores, they took to politics the way that a starving man takes to food. And, you know, and that's where they, they were denied wealth, they were denied entrance into the big clubs, and the one thing that they could compete in was their religion and their politics, and that's where they did. You know, you, you seem like the type of person that does a lot of due diligence and research. I was, I've always been fascinated with uh, the story of JFK assassination a lot. I've, I've interviewed Jim Jenkins, who was one of the autopsy folks who was in the room. I've sat with Clint Hill, which Clint Hill, you obviously know who Clint Hill is, and his interview with us has around 4 million views. Uh, sat down with Abraham Bolden, sat down with several different people to talk about that. Over the years, whether it's, you know, 1968 with your father or your uncle, I can only imagine you reading pretty much anything and everything that comes up about that topic. You know it's one of the most talked about topics around the world. What conclusion do you have so far today with what happened both with your father and your uncle? Well, I, you know, I have uh, spent a lot of time researching, and I actually um, got deep into the research and actually started interviewing people um, for when I wrote my latest book, American Values. And they, they, I did two chapters on the both the assassinations. At the last minute, I left them out. But if you read the book, you can see where it's going. And I interviewed people who were, you know, um, who were part of a Cuban... CIA group, you know, which is clearly the group that was, um, that, you know, was involved in my uncle's assassination. I interviewed um, CIA officials. I interviewed twice. Uh, um, I spent time with Fidel Castro talking about him. I, and talking because the Cubans were so deeply involved in, um, in the, you know, the CIA Cubans, the same ones who were trying to kill Castro were the ones, that division that was led by David Atlee Phillips. And Phillips was a, um, was a CIA propagandist. He had been involved in the 1953 coup in Guatemala against Jacob Arbenz. He was at the Bay of Pigs. He was doing propaganda there. And then he ran um, the Cuban sabotage program, Alpha 66, and these you know, raiding groups. And it was people from that those teams that, you know, were the team that um, was involved in the assassination. Lee Harvey Oswald, he was also Lee Harvey Oswald's case officer, David Abbey Phillips. Originally, Lee Harvey Oswald had worked directly for James Jesus Angleton, who was the counterintelligence. So Lee Harvey Oswald had been a, a radar operator at the Atsui Air Force Base in um in Japan, and that's where the U-2 flights had taken off. So he had very high security post, top secret. He, he defected to the Soviet Union in 1957. And, um, and then, but his defection was what they called a, a dangle. It wasn't a real defection. He was actually a CIA asset from that time. And he was working for Angleton. And the, the reason for his defection was that Angleton, that there was a mole in Langley that they never found. And it's the reason they never had a good spy in Russia. Because as soon as they got somebody who defected, he'd immediately get killed because there was somebody in Langley telling. Angleton, who ran that division counterintelligence, which was supposed to trap Russian spies, recruited Oswald 
to make a fake defection to Russia because he believed he, he had his file on a trigger at Langley. And they assumed that the KGB would be wondering, who is this guy? Is he real? And that they would contact them all at Langley and say, go pull his file and tell us what it says. So he had a trigger system and eyes on that file so that he would know if somebody pulled it and he'd know that that was the mole. It never happened. And so Oswald was recalled from, uh, from Moscow three years later. By then, he'd already married the, the daughter of a KGB colonel. And, you know, he came back here with Marina. He was met at the airport, never interrogated. by the, He was given money to return by the State Department, $600. He flew to Dallas. He was met by a CIA agent or assets in Dallas, who then took care of him, um, who ended up getting him the job at the book depository who took care of him through all of his sojourns. But the whole time he was reporting to two men, David Johannides, who, uh, who ended up being the liaison with the Warren Commission. And his job was just to hide stuff. And of course, Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA that my uncle had fired, and who was the chief suspect in the assassination, ran the Warren Commission, got himself appointed to it, and ran to hide the CIA's involvement. Uh, but Oswald was, um, you know, was a pro-Kennedy guy, loved my uncle, and, you know, was really kind of mis um, misused by David Atlee Phillips and the CIA. And I spoke to um, Cubans who met Oswald and um, met him with David Atlee Phillips. And, you know, I, I think it's, you know, at the time, the Warren Commission, they were able to hide the CIA involvement, but by... Um, 75, when they, you know, Hearts Committee met, they made the conclusion that, yeah, it was a conspiracy. And the, actually, the staff um, for that committee all concluded that it was the CIA that had done it. And I think now we have so much evidence and so much documentation that it's, it's really would be um, almost crazy to think that they were not, you know, um, behind it. In terms of my dad, I never believed that there was a conspiracy. I always believed that Sirhan had acted alone. There was so much evidence against him, his diaries and you know, everything else. And it's, there were 77 eyewitnesses um, to him shooting my dad. But then, you know, when I started talking to people, I realized there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of problems with the story. Oswald could not have shot my father. Oswald, we know what happened to all of his bullets. Oswald was um, at the closest, about five feet from my father. His hand, his, his body was, you know, at eight feet. That's the closest. And he fired two Oswald shots. Oswald or Sirhan? Sirhan, sorry. Sirhan met my father in the Ambassador Hotel kitchen. He was standing the other side of a, of a, a steam table. My father walked toward him. He fired two shots at my father. One of those shots hit Paul Schrade, who was a labor organizer for my father, in the head. Paul's alive today and very close friends, and has been trying for 20 years to get Sirhan out of jail because he knows he's innocent. And he's the one who forced me to sit down and look at the evidence, uh, the autopsy report, etc. The other bullet that he fired toward my father went passed my father's ear and landed in the door jam and was extracted from the door jam. So we know what happened to those two bullets. As soon as he fired those, 
it was a dog pile on by Rosie Greer and Rayford Johnson and the, um, the, uh, uh, the, the concierge for the hotel. A whole bunch of people grabbed him, and the first thing they did at this point, he was gotten away from my father, the opposite direction, but they couldn't get it away from him. And Sirhan fired six other shots and emptied the chamber. It was, a, it was an eight-shot revolver. And every one of those shots hit somebody. So we know what happened to all of them. There's two shots that way, and we know what happened. And there were six shots the other way. My father was killed by four shots from behind. And all, according to Thomas Noguchi's autopsy, Thomas Noguchi never believed Sir Hank Gilman. And he's the greatest, you know, uh, coroner in the history. He, um, he said every one of those shots left tattoo on my dad. So they were all contact shots. The barrel of the gun was actually touching my father when the killer killed him. And so what clearly happened is Sir Han was a distractor. He was firing the shots. He had no memory of it. You know, virtually everybody who's interviewed him believed that he was under some kind of hypnosis. He fired the shots um, and while people were looking focused on him, the, the person, another person fired four shots from behind. One went through harmlessly through the, his shoulder pad of his suit, and the two went to his back and went, in, went into his head. And in every case, the gun was touching him. Now, the, the person who almost certainly fired those shots is a man called Eugene Thanks Cesar who was a, he worked at Lockheed, he had gotten the job as security, the job to be a security guard at that event three days before. He worked at Lockheed as at a high security job. He was, as it turns out, a CIA agent. Um, and uh, he, um, he was, he admitted, he was seen, my father, when he fell, fell onto Cesar. And as he was falling, he turned around and he tore off Caesar's clip-on tie. And so if you see pictures of my father lying on the ground, he has that clip-on tie in his hand. And Caesar says that my father fell on him. He drew his gun. He said he drew his gun when he saw, he changed his story many times about when he drew his gun. But when he stood up, he had the gun out. The police never questioned him at that time, and they never took his gun away. He later sold the gun, gave, sold the gun to another guy at Lockheed, and that gun was has been tracked down since. The, the bullets that came from Sirhan's gun, none of them matched the bullets that were in my father. Oh, so, you know, it's impossible that Sirhan killed my father, and it, and Eugene Thames says, or I was in negotiations with him. Um, you know, three months ago to go over to the Philippines to meet with him, but he wanted to charge me $20,000 for the interview. And uh, he died about, about that time. The, the motivation, uh, uh, Robert, was the motivation you think, uh, uh, what I hear is the fact that your grandfather was so furious what happened to John F. Kennedy. He wanted your father to become a president so they can investigate the CIA is there any truth behind that? Oh, uh, no, because that's ridiculous. Because, um, first of all, my 
my grandfather was um, had a stroke in 1963, and he was essentially non-communicative. Um, so he, oh, even when my uncle was killed, he was my grandfather was already um, in a wheelchair, unable to speak. Oh no, well, my father. Um, you know, when he ran for president, I'm sure that the, listen, my father was the, was the, the, the best investigator of his age. He had brought down the mafia when he was on the Senate. He was the chief counsel of the Senate Rackets Committee. He was the Robert Mueller of his time, times 10. He had brought down, you know, the, the uh, Teamsters Union and the Bakers Union, all of these for corruption. He had, you know, he was the first person to seriously prosecute the mafia. And then he had become the attorney general. And he was at that time in a day-to-day -day battle with the CIA. You can read all about this in my book, American Values, because the CIA it, um, headquarters in Langley was only a half a mile from my house. And so that we had all the Cubans in our house constantly with the CIA agents. I grew up surrounded by KGB agents, CIA agents, Cubans, special forces repelling off the roof of our house. And my father would stop at the CIA every morning and they hated him there on his way to work at the Justice Department. And, you know, the last thing I think they probably wanted was for him to be president of the United States. About two weeks before he died, when he realized, when it became clear that he was going to win in California. And if he wanted California, he would win the, yeah, he had a clear view. He had already yep. beaten Humphrey in 60. He ran my uncle's campaign. He'd already beaten Nixon. He knew how to beat those guys. And those were the only two guys who stood between him in the White House. Oh, and then, you know, the country wanted him. He was enormously popular. His brother was a martyr and beloved. And, and you know, he, he would have won. He was asked at that point, he had been asked many times um, what he thought of the Warren Commission, whether he would reopen it, and he had always dodged the question. And um, although he privately believed that the CIA had killed his brother, he publicly would never say there was anything wrong with the Warren Commission report. But two weeks before he was at, I think, um, it was at Los Angeles Community College, and there's a tape of him where a student asked him, if you're elected president, will you reopen the Warren Commission? And there's a long pause. And then he quietly says, yes. And I think that would have scared the hell out of a lot of people. Wow. Uh, I wish we had another hour together. But uh, look, we're at the end of it. And I appreciate you sharing with us uh, the tail end of it. The last part of speed round, I'll give you a name. Just tell me the first thing that comes to your mom, mind. Okay. Uh, that Dr. Judy Mikovits. She's a hero. Hero? Hero, yeah. Bill Gates. I would say the word dangerous. Anthony Fauci. Hubris. I would say hubris with Bill Gates. Um, Anthony Fauci dishonest. Uh, Trump. Um, I would say. Uh, I, 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 you know, I don't want to say anything. I don't want, I don't want to be political. Ro Robert De Niro. Uh, I love Robert De Niro. I do too. Lyndon Johnson. 
Um, you know, Linda Johnson was uh, a, a, I liked Johnson, okay? I didn't like him when he was, was Vietnam, went to in Vietnam, but he, he wrote me a very sweet letter when I was a kid, when I injured myself. And he actually, people don't know this, but he was very kind to my father at a time when my father was shattered. He, he really made an effort that he didn't need to make to, to get my father reinvolved in public life. But then, you know, he was, got very jealous and their, you know, their relationship deteriorated. But I think um, he, from the, he had a, a, a kindness to him that came out in a critical time for my dad. J. Edgar Hoover. He was a, um, he's a catastrophe for democracy and for um, law enforcement. And, you know, he was a racist, uh, terrible, terrible man. Tedros from CDC. Who? Tedros from uh, CDC. Tedros, he's a war criminal. That's my list. Uh, Robert, thank you for agreeing to do this long form interview. I think we've been talking for a good two and a half hours on many different topics. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks everybody for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five star, write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.